Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then, The devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our our Heavenly Father, we are people who are tempted and tried every day, every hour. Pray that we would be able to look to Your Son, the true Son, to see how we might navigate these waters, to see how we might be true sons of our Heavenly Father. God, would You reveal that to us in a mighty and miraculous way, God. We need You and You alone to make these words come true in our hearts. Amen. So the same question that Jesus Christ had to wrestle with, it's the same question that you and I have to wrestle with. It's the main question for us all. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? that's That's our main idea. Is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then we're going to be looking at verses 1-4. through As this Son of God, we're going to see His complete dependence upon the Father. Verses 1-4. through We're in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 1-4, through we're going to see His complete dependence upon the Father. And then a little bit lower, verses 5-7, through we're going to be seeing how this Son, the true Son, is... Following the will of God. He's following the will of His Father in verses 5-7. through And then verses 8-11, through we see His unwavering allegiance where Jesus Christ is tempted to bow down to Satan, yet His allegiance is to God and to God alone. So, main idea, just to recap, main idea, this is where we're going. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verses 1-4, through we see His complete dependence upon the Father. Verses 5-7, through we see his following the will of God. And then finally, wrapping it up in verses 8 through 11, we're going to be seeing 
his unwavering allegiance to his heavenly Father. Verses 1 through 4, the Christ complete dependence upon God. Let's go back to the text. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we're seeing, as we see this Gospel of Matthew kind of unfold here, we're seeing the story of Christ against the backdrop of the people of God, the Hebrew people of God, the Israel of nation, the the people of Israel. And so we'll be reminded that God's people are pulled out of this land of bondage and slavery. They're pulled out of Egypt. And God hears their cries and He goes to Pharaoh and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. But notice how God sees these, these tribe of people, these Hebrew people. How does God refer to them? In Exodus 4, God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, he's talking to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will now kill your son, the firstborn. So Israel, the the son of God, the firstborn son of God, was redeemed out of Egypt. So too was Christ brought out of Egypt after the death of Herod. And you see, Israel was figuratively baptized as God sent an east wind and parted the Red Sea and His people passed through on dry ground. So too was Christ who was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And ironically, in that setting, we have against the backdrop of Israel, who is the Son of God, the firstborn, as we see in Exodus 4, and Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, you have these Pharisees and Sadducees, kind of ironically. And who are they sons of? They're saying, Abraham! Abraham is our father. They're looking at him. They're not looking to God. Going on. So then we have Christ coming up out of the water, and you have this bold declaration of God the Father declaring, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But with the Israelites, because of their refusal to go into the promised land. See, they're they're brought out of Egypt. They don't wander 40 years right away. They go to the promised land. They're at the cusp. But they doubted God and His goodness. And they refused to go into the promised land that God had set aside for them. So God kills off everybody. and makes them wander in the desert for 40 years. And everybody that's 20 years old and over passes away in the desert. So you have this 40 years of wandering, that, which is God's judgment on His people. So too you have Christ in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but also for 40 days. 
And in every instance that we see against this backdrop of Israel, every instance where they have failed, we see that Christ is being faithful. You have Israel who is the Son of God and they walk in rebellion against their Father. So we see that Christ is the true Son of God, walks in complete obedience to His heavenly Father. So then, we're not surprised in the slightest when Satan wants to tempt Jesus Christ, he goes right for the juggler. He goes for Christ being the Son of God. So then this first temptation here, we see Christ is in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. He's like us. He's human. And in these moments, you see that the subtle words of Satan can become like sweet nectar, you know? And, and you hear him beginning to bring up these doubts in, in the mind of Christ. Did God really say? It must, it must be that your father doesn't love you. Because he wouldn't let you starve, would he? After all, he wants what's best for you. Surely this bread must be pleasing to the eyes. And it's rather obvious why this would be difficult for Christ. I mean, he's not just fully God. He's fully God and fully man. And so he's like us. If we hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, this temptation is real. It's palatable. It's right in front of him. So, with these temptations, under the, the umbrella of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, it's important for us to understand them. So we see, if Christ fails at this temptation, how is He denying His Sonship of the Father? How is Christ denying His Heavenly Father by making bread and eating it? It seems quite trivial. But by making His own bread... Christ is setting aside His complete dependence upon His Heavenly Father. He's not completely dependent upon the Father. He's doing it in and of Himself. Again, remembering remembering the, the Israelites against the backdrop there. They're 40 years... They're wandering in the desert and God has has miraculously provided for them. He's given them manna on the ground. That's just what Satan is asking Christ to do. It's nothing that hasn't been done before. And their dependence in the Israelites was completely upon God. But what you see with the Israelites is that they they grumbled about it. And they they hoarded the bread because they they doubted their Heavenly Father. They doubted that He would provide for them the very next day. But Christ responds, we see, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this, this quote is from Deuteronomy 8. Remember, when we see these quotes, you want to know, where do they come from? What's their context in the Old Testament? And how are they being fulfilled? How are they pointing to Christ? So this quote is from, is from Deuteronomy 8. And, and, the, test, and the, the context is that God is making it a, uh, a, a, 
abundantly obvious that this testing of Israel in the wilderness was to reveal their dependence upon God. Let me, I'm going to give a little more context here. Deuteronomy 8, and I'll start in verse 2. Then you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had led you for these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And when He humbled you and let you, You hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might, that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So friends, we see here that the testing was to reveal their full and complete dependence upon God the Father. So that's that's why Satan's testing him to to just make some bread. It seems quite trivial. Well, no, I'm completely dependent upon God the Father. He's dependent upon God the Father with bread, and he's dependent upon God the Father even without the bread as well. But look around us. Look at us. We, we do everything possible to insulate ourselves from any dependence upon anybody Whatsoever. And in doing so, we act as gods in our own lives. So then rather, when we have something, rather than looking to God, our Heavenly Father, and saying, praise be to God from whom all blessings flow, we look to ourselves and say, well done, good and faithful idol." That's your heart when you're not completely dependent upon God, your Heavenly Father. So there's, there's, there's these, these two types of dependence that we see, that of Israel and that of Christ. And as we were going through our Bible study last week, we, we talked about the providence of God. And we realized that everybody, whether you're Israel and following that mold, or whether you're Christ and following that mold, everybody is completely dependent upon God the Father. We see in Job that all flesh would perish and man would return to dust if it were not for God and His provision. But then you have that dependence that we see in Israel and their grumbling. And they're they're begrudgingly accepting the things of God, but in their hearts they know, I could do better. I know what's best. Sure, I'll take this manna, but I'm going to grumble about it. Sure, I'll take this quail, but I'm going to grumble about it. So you have that kind of dependence upon our Heavenly Father. But then you also have that of Christ, who is the true Son who is fully dependent upon His heavenly Father with bread, as we said, and even without bread as well. So friends, as you become more like Christ and less like Israel, as you become more like Christ, this is where the blessings lie. When you are able to rejoice on our Heavenly Father, whether, whether we have bread or whether we don't, whether we have the job we want or we don't, whether we have the marriage we want or we don't, we realize that we are completely dependent upon God our Father. So whatever we do have or whatever we don't have, we rejoice in our Heavenly Father. I pray that we would all be like 
Habakkuk the prophet when in the in the Shiganoth in chapter three when he's God has has said that he's going to invade the land and, and carry them all off into exile. And he concludes, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock will be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. No bread in the wilderness. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That, my friend, is complete dependence upon God the Father. So, here's where we're at. We're operating under this main idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We see that in the first temptation. Christ is tempted to provide for Himself. He has the means to do it. But no, no, no. He's showing that He is completely dependent upon the Heavenly Father. Now we're going to be seeing how the Son follows the will of His Father as well. Let's go back to the text and read verses 5-7. through seven. Then the devil took Him to the holy city and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to Him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The first thing to notice here is the changing of the setting. The first temptation, they're in the wilderness. Now, he's been brought to the holy city. And the place, when you're in the wilderness, that's where your inner resolve is tested. Can, can you do it? In and of yourself, as you were tempted by yourself. You get in the city, and it's, it's, it's not this inner resolve so much that's being tested. It's not just you and yourself, but it's, it's you and others. So it's not your resolve that's being tested, but it's your vanity, it's your pride, it's your ego that's being tested. And so think of yourself, why? We wrestled with this th- quite a bit throughout the week. Why would it be tempting for Jesus Christ to throw himself off the pinnacle? When you're in the wilderness and you're starving for 40 days and for 40 nights and he's hungry, well then it's pretty obvious why it's tempting to eat bread. But why would it be tempting for Christ to throw himself off the pinnacle? He's not suicidal. I think the answer we see here is what he is promised by Satan. Satan, who ironically is now quoting Scripture. Satan says, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So think of the temptation in this way. Then, So you have Christ on the pinnacle, and there's the masses of the people around Him. The, the center of the city, that is the center of the Jewish people. The masses are always there. The religious people who at this time in the first century are longing for the coming Messiah. It's this crescendo that's been building for well over hundreds of years now. And there's this palatable appetite for the Messiah who is to come. Think how easy it would be for Jesus Christ 
throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, have angels bear him up, lest he strike his foot against a stone, and land in front of the people. You would have these, these people would be flocking to him, and he could easily be the Messiah. It's, it's like Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story, when he's on the edge of Andy's bed, and he does this miraculous, seemingly miraculous thing, you know, and he proves that his wings are these terillium carbonic alloy, right? <laughs> and so you have Christ who could throw himself off and be the cheap Messiah of the people. And what does he not have to do then? He does not have to walk the road of suffering to the cross. So you have then a Messiah with no cross. So he's at the pinnacle of the temple and he can either please the masses or he can please his heavenly Father. And if he pleases the masses... It'll be easier for him. He can avoid the road of of toil and suffering, of labor and strife. But no, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He chooses to obey his heavenly Father, not becoming this Messiah that the crowds are clamoring for, but again, to walk this long, lonely road of suffering that will bring him to drink the wrath of God the Father, to die on the Roman cross. So friends, we see that in Christianity there is no, there is no suffering apart from Christianity. We, we, we cannot separate these two So when we have suffering in our lives, we often ask ourselves, why? We see suffering in the the life of Jesus Christ, and He's asking Himself, how can I be more like God? As we see, He grows in wisdom and stature. In Hebrews, he's, He's perfected as well. So when Satan begins to quote this Psalm 91 to encourage Christ to to jump, It's actually a psalm of God's deliverance of His people, that He will deliver His people. I'll read some of it for you. Starting in verse 1, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And go down several verses to verse 9. For you have made the Lord your dwelling place. Remind, remind yourself, they're now on the temple, the dwelling place of God. Right? You have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. And then he, Satan quotes verse 11 here. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all their ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And here's the key. Because He holds me fast in love, I will deliver Him. So do you see the temptation a little more clearly now? Satan is equating, if 
by quoting Psalm 91, Satan is equating God's deliverance to God's love. Go ahead, Jesus. Just take the easy way out. The angels will save you and you won't have to suffer. And you can still be the Messiah. You can rule and you can reign without going to the cross. Doesn't your Heavenly Father love you? This cheap deliverance that Satan is, is offering Christ is, is like the riches of a prosperity gospel. Yeah, they see the riches of Christ and they, they equate it to some temporal riches that we have in this world. That's the same thing that Satan is promising by quoting Psalm 91. That Satan is promising to Christ that God, your Father, He'll deliver you from these temporal pains, this temporal suffering. Three years of the long road of misery culminating in the death on the cross. Just save yourself of that. But the truth is, Christ was delivered. As Psalm 91 says, He was delivered, but not from temporal pain, but He was ultimately delivered. He was delivered over for our sin, but then He was delivered up once and for all to Heavenly Father. And given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue and tribe confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, Christ was delivered, not temporally, but ultimately through the road of suffering. So this temptation to avoid the road of suffering is precisely why Christ responded the way He did. Christ says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And it's from Deuteronomy 6. And it's it's referring back to the, the the full context or the full quote is that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. And this, this is referring back, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 referring back to an event in Exodus 17. This event in Exodus 17 when they're at Massah, the people of God are on this long road of suffering. They've been delivered out of Egypt. And right away, what do they do? They begin despising this long road of suffering from redemption to the promised land. Christ is, God has redeemed them in a miraculous way. He's pulled them out of Egypt. He's delivered them. He's killed the firstborn son. He's parted the Red Sea. He's provided for them in many ways. He's given them manna. And then they begin grumbling. Grumbling about lack of water. And they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They begin to despise the road of suffering between the redemption and their glorification. The same temptation, remember, this this narrative of Christ against the backdrop of Israel, the same temptation that was given to God or to Christ to avoid this road of suffering. Just throw yourself down. You can be a cheap Messiah. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. It's the same temptation that we 
are faced with to forsake the road of suffering. And it's easy for us to believe this lie that we can have the Christian life apart from suffering. If, if God loves me, then I, I won't have to do this. And we, we do everything we can to avoid suffering. Everything possible. We, we hide ourselves at work. We look at pornography rather than pursuing our wives. Or we watch another movie instead of talking to our husbands. Or we turn to alcohol just to numb it all. We do these drastic things to avoid true suffering. However, do you notice the equation between God's love and suffering? Of all of the paths that He could have had His Son take in this world, of all the paths He could have taken, what is the path that Christ walked? He walked the path of suffering. And that is what God the Father had for Him. And we never deny we never deny the love that God the Father had for His Son. So then, why do we begin to doubt the Father's love when we see suffering in our own lives? As, we, as Adam and I get to know you guys, not only on the surface, but now even deeper and deeper, we know that all of us have stories in our lives that are either current or former uh, seasons of suffering. It's broken marriages or infidelity or rebellious children or the losing of children or the longing for children. All of us have this path of suffering that we are walking on. But when we're able to, as Christians, recategorize this suffering, and we see that Christ, our heavenly, our heavenly Christ, has suffered as well under the will of God, then we as Christians are able to realize that this suffering is not only not denying the love of God the Father, but is actually a sign of God the Father's love for us that we as Christians would be chosen to suffer as our Messiah has suffered. What a glorious thing. So don't fall into the temptation that was given to Christ to throw yourself down, to avoid this suffering. There's many ways to avoid it, but my friends, don't fall temptation to avoid this road of suffering. So friends, we're seeing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verses 1-4, through He is completely dependent upon the Father. This, This heavenly Father that has sustained Him even without food, and we are then remembered that this spiritual nourishment from God our Father is far greater than any physical nourishment we might have. And then verses 5 through 7, so he's completely dependent. Verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 7, we see that he, he doesn't jump, but he takes the road of suffering. That is, he follows the will of his heavenly Father. That is the mark of a true son. 
Finally, we're going to be seeing how Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, displays His unwavering allegiance to the Heavenly Father. Let's return to the text, verses 8-11. through 11. Again, the devil took Him to a very high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And He said to Him, All of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship Me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. So here is is Satan's last-ditch effort to uh, tempt the Son of God to forsake His heavenly Father. And it, it seems absurd, right? So you have Christ, who has made everything, tempted by these, these temporal kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms. Why, why would he settle for, for their glory? And then we see Satan just remove all facade of any tact whatsoever, and he just gets to the heart of the matter. If you bow down and worship me. And the third time, so how does Christ respond? How does he respond again? It is written. Just as as an aside, you see Adam and Eve in the temp in the, in the garden. They're tempted, and how do they re- how do they respond? They behold the fruit. They they hold the fruit and they look at the fruit and, and it was pleasing to the eyes. Now contrast that to Christ. It is written, again it is written, for it is written. A a massive difference between the failing of Adam in the garden when he's beholding the fruit. And it sure looks pleasing. the, The sins of the world, they look pleasing to the eye. But don't, my friends, don't don't behold the fruit. Just behold the glories of God. It's going back. How How did Christ respond? Again, it is written, it is written, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And it's again quoting from Deuteronomy 6 where, where Moses is warning the people not to worship the, the, the gods of the Canaanites. And that is, not to worship the, the kingdoms of the world, these temporal things. Now, can you imagine someone forsaking the glories of God? Forsaking the glories of God for the kingdoms of this world. Something temporal. Can you imagine that? Well, of course you can. You do it all the time. You do it all the time. How concerned are we about our neighbors and what they think of us? That we're, we, would, we, 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 internally, we just shut down when there's an opportunity to share the gospel. We'd rather we're concerned about what they think rather than telling them they're sinners. In the hands of an angry God. But no, 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 no. Don't worry. Worry more about what they think of you. Or you, you neglect your family. This is me. You neglect your family and work needlessly long hours for the praise of men rather than the glory of God. 
Or, or perhaps you parent your children in such a way that you, you discipline them and you, you push them down and you get them to respond the way that you want at that moment. But you know there's this groundswell of rebellion against you and there will be rebellion against God. But you don't care. You would rather look good at that moment rather than glorify God with your children. You would rather glorify yourself in front of other people. The whole lot of us, friends, don't you see that the whole lot of us were all wretched sinners? We are Israel. We are the unfaithful children of God. But praise be to God, there is a Son who is faithful. One who is completely dependent upon the Father. One who follows the will of His Father. The one that has unwavering allegiance to God the Father. Praise be to God that we have Him. And so, friends, we can be adopted children. Though we are rebellious in our nature, we can be adopted children of God by believing in Christ, the true Son of God. And trusting in Him rather than our deeds and our filthy rags. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we see our rebellion before You. How we are unfaithful children. And time and time again, we see that You give us good gifts and we grumble. And You give us more provision and we despise you all the more god i pray that you would give us hearts that desire to be true children of you that we would be obedient and that your spirit would work in us in a marvelous way that we would cry out to you abba father and find ourselves not in this world but in you and you alone Amen.